Yes, Lord. We declare that you are the one and only, the true God, the Savior of the world. We give you thanks today for raising our dead bones to new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everyone doing? Awesome, awesome. Uh, it is always a privilege to be able to uh, be with you guys on a Sunday morning up here and being able to... Uh, fill in for pastor. Uh, pastor and Ms. Lena, they are off in Maine on their uh, mission trip. They left a little early to get things prepared for the rest of the team that will be joining them later this week. So make sure to keep them in your prayers as they are gone. Um, but in the meantime, y'all get stuck with me. And so I'm excited for that. I hope you are as well. Oh, I was looking bad. How blessed am I? Do y'all know the first mention of insurance in the Bible? It's in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve needed more coverage. Oh. All right, students, you're supposed to laugh at all my jokes and be super supportive, so there we go. Yeah, I, I, uh, I didn't have time for this service, but in the first service, I planted some people so that it was a lot louder laughter there. But obviously, God didn't call me to comedy. He called me to preach, and so I'll leave comedy to the professionals. I'll get with Bob Smiley, and we'll see if we can't work something out for the next time. But in the meantime, the only reason why I really told you that joke was to be able to introduce to you what it is that I want to talk to you about today. And so what we're going to be doing is looking uh, in our Bibles at Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take a little peek at the fall of man today. And so uh, you can begin turning your Bibles there at the, uh, at the beginning of the scriptures in Genesis. And so uh, we'll be reading the passage of scripture. Um, and when, when I read this passage of scripture, I'm always very fascinated. There's so many different uh, fascinating questions to ask, so many different details and lines of thought to, uh, to follow, so many different things that you can uh, uh, look at in this text. And so I wanted to include all of it in my message, but I know that y'all all want to get to lunch. And so I decided to narrow it down a little bit. And so what I want to touch on uh, and really look at this morning is the strategies of Satan's temptation of Eve. That's what I want to talk to you all about today is the strategies of Satan's temptation of uh, Eve. You see, this isn't a story of happenstance where the, uh, Satan was just slithering around as a snake and stumbled upon Eve as she was in the garden. There was a deliberate intention in this meeting that we find in Genesis chapter 3. But before we get too deep into our text in Genesis 3, we need to back up a little bit so we can get the context of our passage of Scripture this morning. And so uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are the creation accounts. Genesis 1 brings uh, to attention the larger creation story. God is creating the heavens and the earth and all that is within it, and he calls it good um, throughout that time. And then Genesis 2 concentrates more on the creation of man and woman. Now, these aren't competing um, texts from chapter 1 and chapter 2, but they're meant to be complementary to one another and read as such. And so uh, in chapter 2, we see God uh, with the creation of man and woman. And so I want you uh, to look in Genesis 2 at verses 8 and 9 with me real quickly. It says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused every tree to grow that is pleasing in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
these verses here, they give us our setting for what we're going to be, where we're going to be at in Scripture today. God planted a garden, and you know that if God planted it, it had to have been an amazing paradise uh, for them. And so it says that it is there that God decides that Adam should dwell. And after placing uh, Adam there, God gave him everything that he needed. It says all the trees were both pleasing to the sight and good for food. They had beauty and they had substance for him. And it was in the garden that we find two important trees, the tree of life. And what was the second one? Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Very good. Y'all are paying attention so far. And then here, move down a little bit with me to verses 15 uh, through 17. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God gives Adam instruction to maintain and continue to grow the garden. And as a part of those instructions, God gives a clear command. Adam had plenty of freedom to move about in the garden, to be able to eat from the trees. Uh, everything was uh, pleasing and good, it says. And, but it says he's able to do that for everything except for one. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam is to not eat. Because with it comes some consequences, some dire, doomed, devastating consequences, and that it was death, right? It says that the day he eats of it will be the day of his death. These verses give us the context for the dialogue that we're going to be uh, looking at in Genesis chapter 3. But before we get there, one more element needs to be noticed, and that is that Adam, at this point in the story, he is still alone. Eve has not been created, and so from verses 18 and uh, on to the rest of the end of the chapter, we see God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helper, and we see his wife Eve um, created. And so there, at the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve are together in perfect paradise, right? Living wonderfully in perfect relationship with God, understanding all that it is that God has asked them to do. All is good. Life can't get any better than where they're at right now. But as most of us know, and what we'll be reminded today, it doesn't stay that way, right? All because Adam and Eve were unaware. They were unaware that they had an adversary that was lurking, wanting to turn the relationship with God upside down. And this adversary, he has not gone away. He's still around today. He continues to roam the earth, looking to see who he can destroy, seeking those believers in Jesus that he can trip up in temptation so that he can turn their relationship with God upside down as well. Jesus told us in John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to kill, and, to steal, and kill, and destroy. And then in 1 Peter 5.8, we are told, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We have an adversary the devil, Satan. We have a few different names in which we can identify him as. But regardless of which one you choose to say, this reality doesn't change. He's looking for someone to devour. He's coming to kill, to steal, to destroy. He's hoping to trip up Christians in temptation, hoping to sway them away from the relationship with Christ and from serving God, hoping to cause pain and suffering and discouragement wherever he can. He, see, he doesn't want the kingdom of God nor the family of God to grow 
And so it says he prowls the earth, awaiting the chance to take us out. So Peter wrote, be on the alert. And this is why I think it's important for us to study this passage of Scripture in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. That's why I think it's important for us to better understand the strategies of Satan so we can be prepared, so we can be vigilant for when those attacks come. Because I guarantee you, if you try to progress in your relationship with God at all, these attacks will be around the corner. So to know the strategies helps us to know how to deal with them when they come. And so that is the goal this morning, to be able to identify the strategies of Satan and to understand how it is that we can stand against them. So out of Genesis 3, 1 through 7, I want to show you those two strategies of Satan to trip up Christians. So let's read our passage of Scripture together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. He, had, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So let's walk through this passage of Scripture together and see those two strategies of Satan to trip up Christians. And really, these are uh, dual strategies that are happening at the same time, but we'll take a look at at them um, separately. And the first strategy that I want you to see is that Satan offers alternative thinking. Satan offers alternative thinking. On Wednesday, I began a uh, new uh, series of messages with the students over 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy 4.12 is our uh, student ministry theme verse. And uh, so I felt like it would be good to walk through that with them. And it says, let no one look down on you. Uh, let no one look down on your youthfulness. But rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And so we're examining what it means to be an example in those different areas mentioned. We kicked off Wednesday night by looking at the area of speech. And so as a part of that message, I asked the students if they've ever played what I like to call the loophole game. You know that game that people play where they know what you said, they know what you meant by what you said, but they look for a way in which you phrase it to be able to get around what it is that you've asked them to do, right? Do y'all, are y'all familiar with this game at all? Maybe a few of you. Um, so I asked them how many of you have ever played that game. And so in case you're confused, I wanted to put it in context of a parent-child relationship because not everyone in here is either a parent or has been a child of a parent. And so let me put it this way. Say your kid gets home from school around 4 o'clock and their bedtime is at 9 o'clock. And when they get home from uh, school, you tell them, I want all the dishes in the sink to be cleaned. And so you tell them that they have the evening to be able to accomplish that task. And so as uh, the night goes on, you're not saying anything to them, but 8.45 rolls around. It's getting close to that 9 o'clock bedtime, and you see that the dishes haven't been taken care of yet. So you call your child into the 
uh, kitchen and you start chastising them for their disobedience. And that's whenever they look at you confused and they say, but mom, dad, you said that they had to be cleaned before I went to bed. And technically, I'm not in bed yet. And that's how you know this game is beginning to be played. It's that word technically there. I'm not in bed yet. Why am I getting in trouble? I still have 15 minutes left technically. And if you hadn't have called me down and started getting on to me, I was on my way actually to do it right now. But you know there's no way that they were going to get those dishes cleaned in 15 minutes, right? There's, it just wasn't going to happen to have them washed and dried and put away. And, and so you start to get a... You start to, uh, get onto them for that and say, there's no way. And then they look at you again and say, but technically you said that you wanted them cleaned. Clean doesn't mean to dry them and to put them away, right? I was just going to put some soap on them, wash them down real quickly, and they would have been cleaned, right? So there's that technically. Yes, I guess there's that amen that I knew was coming, right? At that point, you're doing everything you can just not to choke your child, right? (laughs) What they are saying is not technically wrong, right? But everyone knows what the actual expectations were. They might be finding some loopholes in what you have said, the way that you had phrased it, but we all know that they were wrong. I'm not going to ask who's guilty of this or whose uh, who's, uh, households have this going on, but your students did admit to me who it was on Wednesday night whenever I asked them who played this game. And so if you want to have any uh, family conversations and what have you, I'm available later this week. You just let me know. But I think we can all relate to this idea. And this is what I imagine happening in this passage of Scripture. In an attempt to offer Eve an alternative way of thinking about God's commands, he plays this little game. So let's look back at verse 1 real quickly. We're quite uh, in the story of Genesis introduced to a new character abruptly. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God has made. Now, we know from other scriptures that the serpent is to represent Satan, uh, like from Revelation 12:9. However, for Eve, there was no real reason for her to be on high alert right away. The scriptures admit right there in verse 1 that God created serpents. He created snakes. And the scriptures, uh, and there's not yet sin, so there was no need for her to be worried about anything. And the scriptures say that he was crafty. And we know that that is meant for us to be understood as deceitful. But the word crafty isn't always a negative thing. As a matter of fact, uh, eight times in Proverbs, that same word in the original language is uh, translated as prudent. It's contrasted to being naive or to being a fool. And so to be prudent is to be crafty. Serpents being crafty wasn't always a negative thing. And uh, Jesus even told his disciples that they should be as shrewd as serpents. Shrewd, prudent, wise, crafty. So here in Genesis 3.1, all Eve knows is that there's this serpent talking to her. I won't get into the fact of why she wasn't alarmed by a talking snake, but for whatever reason, she's not faced by that. I know for me, whenever I see a snake, I run in the opposite direction like a little girl. Is there anybody else who has a fear of snakes like that? A few of you? Okay. If you use that fear against me later on, me and you will have problems. But I would be running away from the snake and running in the opposite direction, especially if it was talking to me. But Eve, she didn't have a problem with that. And so... Um, Anyways, the serpent begins to talk to her, and he begins by asking this technically type of question. He says, indeed, has God said? Did God really say that technically? 
that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I want you to notice something immediately by that question. He slightly changes the language of God's command. If you remember from chapter 2, God said that they could eat from any tree except one. But Satan reframes it in his question. The emphasis changes from them having freedom to eat from any tree but one to having some sort of prohibition to eat from any tree that they want. All of a sudden, it's framed as God not being generous anymore. Now the seed has been planted that somehow God is withholding. And that is the start to offering alternative thinking. Satan is sowing doubt in the mind of the woman. And instead of stepping away from that conversation, she continues to engage it. There is a willingness in her to listen and dialogue with the serpent. And as such, her response seems to begin to follow the lead of the serpent. The doubt is beginning to do its work. Listen to her response. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. You see the subtle changes from Genesis 2, 16 and 17 to Genesis 3, 2 and 3. There's very small changes. For example, she leaves out certain words like any and freely from the original command. Nothing crazy, but even those little things, even though it's the same basic idea of the command, they begin to sound a little bit more restrictive. The rule goes from not eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil to not eating or touching it. When we start to recognize those things in her response, we begin to notice how her response seems to be inching a little bit closer to what the serpent has said and a little bit further away from what God's original commands were. Satan has succeeded in his first little bit of his uh, deception. He has Eve's attention. He's drawing her attention away from the understanding of what God was to another possible way of understanding him. So now he's going to go in for the kill. He has her baited. He has her on the line. So then he directly disputes God's warning. And in that process, he also attacks the character of God. Listen to verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God had said in Genesis 2, You surely will die. But here, Satan tells Eve, You surely will not die. Complete opposite statements. Satan basically is calling God a liar. And then he tries to explain why. God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want you to join him in wisdom. He is holding you back. And have we not heard things like that still today? God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have allowed me to lose my job. God, if you really had any care, you wouldn't allow people to lose loved ones before they're ready. God, if you had any compassion, why is there pain? Why is there destruction? Why is there war? Why is there starvation? Satan likes to conjure up all these different attacks against God and the character of God all the time. And it's not something new. He has been doing it from the very beginning. And so this is what we see, a complete contradiction against God, followed by a slander of his character. This gives the opportunity to change the way Eve is thinking about things. I can imagine what's running through her mind. Well, did God say things the way that I remember hearing that he said it? Am I remembering what Adam relayed to me, perhaps? 
Is this, what is his will? Is he holding me back? Are the consequences that I've heard really true? How bad can it really be? Maybe I should try it. Maybe I should take a bite. We have to be careful with this strategy of Satan. It's deceitful. It's subtle. It doesn't start just by defaming God and attacking a major part of our belief about God. It's methodical. The strategy starts with doubt, and then if it's entertained and given credibility to those doubts, it continues to eventually lead to direct disputes against God's word. And that then opens the door to the second strategy that I want to show you, and that is that Satan offers enticing opportunities. Satan offers enticing opportunities, those opportunities to try the temptation that he will use to trip you up. Your mind's been considering it, and now he wants you to have the chance to take action on this alternative way of thinking about things. Listen to verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now that the alternative thinking has set in, the opportunity is offered to act. And that opportunity, it's enticing to her. It is as if the fruit of the tree is calling her name. And knows with me the progression. It says first that she saw that the tree was good for food. There was substance to be had. There was something to be gained. It wasn't uh, all bad, right? She would be able to eat, and maybe she would both be able to cure her curiosity about it, but also maybe she, her hunger for it. There seemed to be some sort of practical benefit to the act. Then it says it was a delight to her eyes. There was an attractive appearance to the opportunity. It was not something that was going to be unpleasurable for her to take part in. No, it had some sort of desirability to her. It was a beautiful thing. She wanted it. When she saw it, something lit up in her eyes. Many of you know uh, Mr. Randy Newman, and if you know him, you know that he has a love for classic cars. And Pastor always likes to tease his wife, Miss Dana, about uh, Randy's great love for cars. And when he does, he always talks about how Randy gets a twinkle in his eyes when he starts talking about those cars. A twinkle like he never gets any other time, even when he's talking about Miss Dana herself, right? Yeah, it's all a joke. We all know Mr. Randy loves his wife dearly, um, but she will quickly admit to you as well that he does have a particular love for cars, right? And so uh, maybe you have a passion with something like that, where you just get excited about being able to talk about whatever it is. That there's just a distinct difference in you when you're around that thing, and you have a special energy and a special uh, passion for it, and people see it in your eyes, right? You can see it in their eyes whenever they have that passion for something, that, that great love for it. And that's the idea that I see here with this fruit uh, with Eve. The fruit quickly became that for her. It was a delight to the eyes. And then she saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. It was something that spoke to her heart and to her mind. Who doesn't want to have more intelligence? Who doesn't want to have more knowledge? Who doesn't want to grow in wisdom, right? None of those things are wrong. It's in this opportunity that Satan has shown her that there is something that speaks to all aspects of the human experience, right? The physical, it was good for food. The emotional, it was a delight to the eyes. The mental, it was desirable to make one wise, one aspect is missing, something that wasn't considered throughout this process, and that was the spiritual. But we'll get to that in just a moment. For now, in this moment, we see that she was tempted by something that seemed absolutely amazing. 
Satan offers things to us that look good. He offers things to us that we think will make us feel good in some way. He offers things to us that we think will maybe make a benefit to us and make us better in some way. It makes me think of what the scriptures say in 1 John 2, 16. And a warning about not loving the world and not being drawn to the things of the world. John summarizes in this way. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, desirable to make one like God. It seems as though Satan doesn't really change his tactics all that much. From the very beginning of the scriptures to almost the complete other side of the scriptures, we see the same basic tactics. And Satan got her. It says she took from the tree's fruits and ate. She was enticed. She had that ability to act on it. And then we finally see her husband enter into the story. And it appears that he was nearby but not, and kind of witnessed everything, but not really involved in it. Maybe he was around, but away from the conversation. We really don't know. But regardless, instead of stepping in and taking action, we see that he followed along as well. The difference between the two is that Eve was deceived in her uh, disobedience. She was deceived into thinking that maybe she was doing something good. But, God, but Adam, he was there when God said it. He heard it with his own two ears, what the command was. His was a direct, deliberate disobedience. And he chose wrong. And so what were the results? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They suffered. Their eyes were opened. They got that knowledge. They knew that they were naked, right? They sought a solution for that. But with their open eyes and their newfound wisdom and their newfound knowledge, they also, for the first time, got to experience fear and guilt and shame. Their innocence was lost. They got tripped up, and then there was a domino effect that has been felt throughout all of human history as a result. And we know how the story continues. There were spiritual consequences to their actions. That is the aspect that Satan was able to hide in this temptation of Eve. He offered something for the physical, for the emotional, for the mental aspects. But the spiritual was missing because he knew that that was something that he wasn't going to be able to twist around. So it was simply ignored. And as such, Adam and Eve experienced a spiritual death. They didn't die immediately, physically speaking, but immediately they were surely dead. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as such, they got removed from the garden. So then the question for us becomes, how is it that we avoid falling victim to these strategies of Satan? When he's offering this alternative thinking and he's offering these enticing opportunities, what is it that we can do to avoid the pitfalls and being tripped up into temptation? To answer that, I think we walk quickly back through the progression that Eve faced again. First, the word of God was questioned, right? Eve had to face the question of, did God really say? Did God really say this? And so the first and foremost way to avoid being tripped up is to know the word. Know the words of God. 
And I know this seems like a pretty basic church answer, but it's the truth. It is the very foundation for all that we uh, have to do in order to be able to stand firm. You can't hope to stay on your feet in your walk with God if you do not know what it is that he has said. This is why pastor is constantly challenging us to know the word of God, why he's constantly challenging us to have passages of scripture memorized, and that he is continuously doing that um, and it's stretching us in those things. It's because this Psalms 119 verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against thee. I've hidden your word in my heart so that when the temptation comes, I might be able to fight it. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Knowing, memorizing God's word is the chief way for us to be able to avoid getting tripped up by Satan. Secondly, temptation was entertained. Eve engaged the serpent. Even after it was obvious that he was kind of leading her away from God's word, he sowed that doubt in her mind, but she kept talking to him. She never sought out God. She never sought out Adam to talk about the command that uh, was given. She rather entertained the conversation further. And after contradicting God and maligning his character, she stayed. She stayed around that tree. She hung around that tree. She gazed at that fruit. To avoid being tripped up by Satan's strategies, you have to flee in the opposite direction. You can't hang around it. If you have doubts about something, you need to seek out what is it that God did say in his word. If you're having doubts and you're struggling with something, you have to uh, figure things out. And, and maybe that means going to a pastor or a church leader and having those conversations. If you're feeling drawn towards a temptation, you have to have the wisdom to turn and run from them. The scriptures teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that God will provide the way of escape. If only we were to look for those ways of escape. If only we were to take advantage of those ways of escape. But it says, he will provide the way of escape. No temptation has overcome you. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray that they may not enter into temptation. We have to be proactive in this. We know his strategies, so we have to be looking for his strategies. We have to be identifying these strategies whenever they show up in our lives and then take action on them. Pray that God would not lead you into temptation, but when you feel those strategies laying hold in your life, you have to flee in the opposite direction. And then third, Adam and Eve, they did get tripped up. In verse 6, they gave in. And then in verse 7, we saw what the results were. What we didn't really get into was everything from verse 8 and forward about uh, the fullness of that that confrontation. But God comes back onto the scene and he confronts them in verse 8. And though not perfectly, there's this confession of what has just transpired, of what has just happened. And so I want to encourage you to do the same. If you get tripped up, which we all do from time to time, don't sit on it. Don't sit in that, that moment quickly recognize it. Acknowledge it before God. Repent of it. For each of us, the fruit of temptation comes in many different forms. What that fruit is for me might not be what that fruit is for you. This New Testament is fraught with different passages of Scripture that describe all of those different sins and all those different things that tempt us. We can all risk getting fallen into that trap of thinking it's good, that it might be delightful and desirable. 
but there's consequences if we end up acting on it, if we end up taking that fruit and taking that bite. So we have to turn from our sin quickly and return to God. But for some of you here, it's not about returning to God. It's about going to him for the first time, perhaps. Maybe you've been a victim to Satan's strategies from the very beginning. And you've been enticed to live apart from God and apart from his love, his grace, his mercy. Satan has put things before you that have seemed good and desirable and delightful. And you've been feasting on those things. But they never seem to really satisfy just like Adam and Eve, they were left unsatisfied after they took their bite. So too are you. And so you're missing the one thing that can truly bring satisfaction to your life, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus has provided a way for you to be in relationship with the Lord. He left his rightful place in heaven. He came to the earth. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life without sin. Though tempted, he did not sin. And after living that perfect sinless life, he willingly went to the cross and to shed his blood so you can have forgiveness of sins. Where Satan only offers death, Jesus offers life. And it is through him that he offers that. And the Bible says that he died on the cross and three days later he rose again with victory over sin and death once and for all. So that whoever believes in Jesus and confesses him as Lord, they shall be saved and have eternal life. So if you have not accepted that gift of God, I want to encourage you that let today be that day that you accept that gift. Let today be that day that you receive forgiveness for your sin, that you receive eternal life. So if you want to know more about that, if you want to have better understanding of those things, I want to encourage you in just a moment, I'm going to pray and then the band is going to sing that you get out of your seat and you come down and you have that conversation, see me, and we can talk about what that looks like. But for everyone else in here, that you are confident in your relationship with God, what has the Holy Spirit been speaking to you? This is your time as well. So as I pray, I want you to pray as well and ask God to reveal to you what it is that he has for you from this. Lord, we love you. We're thankful to be able to come into your presence. God, you are just so good. You're so loving. You're so merciful. You are just. You are righteous. And God, as always, it is a, uh, a privilege to be able to enter into uh, your throne room with boldness. And we know that's because of the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we seek to uh, faithfully follow Jesus, I pray that you would help us to identify these strategies of Satan in our lives and that you would help us to uh, respond accordingly. And Father, whatever it is that you would have for each of us to do, I pray that you give us the boldness to take actions, to not merely be hearers of the word, but also doers. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.